0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Bups' Dharma Lounge. This is a place and a time to relax, and to discuss and practice all things Dharma. Bubsa, frank jude and i want to welcome you to the first episode of the new year our second year our second season in fact um, it was february 23rd last year that i dropped the first episode so we're approaching the one year anniversary so i want to take some time to really thank all of you who have offered uh support to keep us going here um, and that support comes in many ways um most importantly subscribe if you've been listening and you haven't subscribed yet please i implore you subscribe and you could subscribe on all the platforms you know it it doesn't (laughs) cost anything um subscribe to youtube Um, audio we're on spotify and anchor apple uh, podcast app i think there might be a few others but those are the main ones and again as i said on youtube Please comment. Comments really are helpful. Um, suggestions for future episodes are always welcome. And uh, share. Tell other people. Let the you know spread the word if you find this helpful. Uh, and then if you would like to financially offer any support in the way of Donna, the, um, the link for Donna is in the episode description. Specifically, I would like to thank those who've offered Donna since the last episode dropped in December. Alexander Reusler, Joel J. Ellie Cooperwait, Gabion Sally Weber, Bernie Perus, Dirach Kathy Keenan, Joe Ted Robbins, and Chatra Sandy Greenberg. Thank you all. I also want to thank in particular those who sent emails since the December drop of the episode on Nikon. Um, If you haven't seen that or listened to that episode, Nikon is a gratitude practice that comes from the Pure Land Buddhist tradition. And um, I spent three weeks with my daughter on an expedition cruise to Antarctica, and it was really sweet to receive these emails uh, expressing gratitude for a practice of gratitude um it would be nice if some of those people commented Uh, i do appreciate the emails but um, if you like what you hear and you want to thank me you could also thank me as a comment Uh, i think all those things help to i don't know the algorithm or something get it get this episode uh or the, the podcast itself uh more widely seen and heard all right so for the first episode of this second year the second season i thought i would step back a bit and really look at like what is mindfulness you know i've addressed what it isn't in some ways in the past i've kind of dropped an episode criticizing the neoliberal um, understanding of mindfulness Um, and so i want to just go a little bit more deeper now into it research into mindfulness dates back at least 50 years in the west Uh, but it has been in the last two decades where there's been a tremendous growth in interest uh, and finally lately a little bit more deeper and um solid research right it was only like maybe 10 years ago where um willoughby Britton pointed out that although there were something like 1800 so-called studies on mindfulness, only four of them had a control group. And I was like, what? That's like ridiculous. Um, There's also been a tremendous um, application of mindfulness in various contexts, including therapies directed towards everything from anxiety and depression to obsessive compulsive disorders and even eating disorders right and given our capitalist economy as you might guess in marketing nowadays it seems that many people feel that if you can slip the word mindfulness into whatever you're packaging you'll guarantee greater acceptance of whatever whatever it is that you're selling but when we really look to see how mindfulness is described in the buddhist texts we see a discrepancy between that and how it's described by many contemporary Buddhist teachers, as well as in the psychological community, the mainstreaming of mindfulness. Again and again, I read passages that describe mindfulness as really what I would refer to as bare attention. For instance, um, in her essay, An Analyst's Surrender, Sarah Weber writes, mindfulness is a cultivation of a moment-to-moment awareness of changing perceptions in a neutral, impartial way. And Carrie Wong, for instance, in the about.com website, writes, Mindfulness is a type of meditation that essentially involves focusing your mind on the present. To be mindful is to be aware of your thoughts and actions in the present without judging yourself. Now, you'll, you'll notice there's a common theme here about mindfulness embodying a present moment awareness. Again and again, it's like momentary awareness, moment to moment awareness, different ways of phrasing it, and also the holding of a neutral, non-judging, impartial, non-reactive attitude or perspective towards experience. And that is absolutely true as far as it goes right Uh, we don't want to get caught in our reactivity to what's happening because then we actually lose contact with what's happening and our reaction is like just overtakes us it occupies us right but my mom right had Alzheimer's she was in the now in the moment and if you were having a conversation with her she can respond and have a great conversation if you left the room And came back five minutes later she had no recollection of the conversation and she might not even remember who you are right so this points to the fact that we need memory in order for a relationship and not just a relationship between two people but very importantly a relationship between the past and the present the relationship between the present and the future that's why We are really ultimately practicing mindfulness. The fetishization almost of this moment to moment awareness, you know, just with the present moment non-reactively, that's just attention, right? Um, And it sounds more to me like the Pali word Manasikara, which means attention or mental engagement. and. We would find it used to talk about that the initial moments of bare cognizing before any kind of recognizing or recognition. Okay. This bare attention is considered a neutral mental factor. And by that it's meant that it's neither inherently wholesome nor unwholesome. <clears throat> now the poly word that we translate as mindfulness is Sati and Sati is related to a word for recollection, for remembering, for non-forgetfulness, which again, certainly includes a present scented recollection as the unwavering attention to a present reality. It's a kind of calling us back to just this, just now here. Um, However, commentaries point to an aspect of a kind of retrospective memory of the past and a prospective remembering, for instance, to either do something in the future or maybe not to do something in the future. It's like if I pay attention to the present moment and don't get caught in my reactions, I will get a clear understanding of how the present moment came to be. And if I don't like the present moment, if it's painful, if there's a matter of dukkha involved, I want to remember not to allow those conditions in the future. So retrospective and prospective memory are involved there. And that's something that the mindfulness industry with its attention to the present moment, you know, unwaveringly seems to ignore mindfulness can be used to sustain bare attention but we don't ever see mindfulness or sati completely equated with bare attention or manisikara right mindfulness is supportive of remembering so for instance imagine you're rushing into the house maybe you have to use the restroom right so you rush into the house and you just un, you know very distractedly you lay your keys down and you go about and you, you do your business all right and then maybe 20 minutes later you find yourself scrambling all over the house trying to remember where did i leave my keys where are they right um if you place them down mindfully you would remember where you place them. And that remembering is a kind of a knowing, right? Um, and that's really essential for mindfulness to be mindfulness. Uh, the Pali term sampajana means clear comprehension or clear knowing or clear understanding. And that too tends to be ignored in the contemporary teachings of mindfulness, right? It's all about just being with the present moment, but, there's no real direction to needing to understand how did the present moment come to be now for mindfulness to be right mindfulness samyak sati right which is one of the limbs of the buddha's noble eightfold path it sati requires the presence of sampajana or clear understanding right It's a form of introspective awareness that includes several different kinds of knowings, right? So first, there's precise knowing. And that's very much like what the contemporary understanding of mindfulness is all about, right? It is a knowing of discrete moments of experiencing. That's the precision, precise knowing. There's also uh, a complete knowing. And complete knowing is understood as seeing and knowing the three characteristics of existence, which are impermanence, all phenomena are impermanent, the not self or empty nature of phenomena, no phenomena has any self nature, nothing exists from its own side, so to speak. And the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of phenomena. That's not to deny that something could be temporarily satisfying, but no phenomena will be ultimately satisfying. And then there's also balanced knowing, and that's the observation of all phenomena with sati, with mindfulness. We don't exclude anything. In the Buddha uh, discourse on Satipatthana, he includes many, many things, and it's not It's not exclusive of anything. Now, there are three factors that need to be present. Mindfulness, Sati, clear comprehension, Sampajjana, and ardency. There's a real vigor to it, which is in the Pali word is atapi, which many of you who might be yogis might recognize a similarity with the term tapas, uh, which literally means heat. But it's just really an energetic application. that needs to be there with yoniso manisikara, which means appropriate attention or wise reflection. Right? So we, be, we, we have to be applying our attention appropriately. Sati is later understood in, in commentaries to be a wholesome mental factor that clearly distinguishes between wholesome and unwholesome mental states and behaviors. And it's also used to cultivate and support wholesome states and behaviors and to counteract and diminish unwholesome states and behaviors, right? You can see there's nothing impartial or neutral about that. There's an evaluation, what's wholesome, what's unwholesome. Now, earlier discourses do mention the possibility that there can be wrong types of mindfulness, Micah Sati, to which right mindfulness, Samasati, is counterposed. Mindfulness becomes right when grounded in that ethical understanding of non-harming and when it is applied to and cultivated in what the Buddha called the four Satipatthanas, um, Satipatthana is often translated as the Four Foundations or Establishments of Mindfulness. Increasingly, I am referring to them as the Four Domains of Mindfulness. Right. When Buddhist meditation is reduced to bare attention, again, as it is often done by many contemporary Buddhist teachers and by almost all therapists, you know, all the people in this psychological community, who integrate what they call mindfulness into their practice, this is what gets neglected, ethics. And also the practices such as the four immeasurables, um, loving-kindness or, as I prefer, friendliness, uh, joy, compassion, and equanimity. Now, several years ago, I was invited to participate in a psychological conference Here at the University of Arizona and I was invited to present a Buddhist understanding of mindfulness and one of the therapists present said well you know in western psychotherapy we have to remain ethically neutral we have to stare away from making any ethical evaluations of our clients and I says well I'm not saying that you have to ethically judge your client right Uh, but you see the behavior and without passing any judgment on a client's reported behavior you could follow the injunction of doing no harm right and you could do that through skillful questioning of what they think might have been the result if they had done something else right you're not saying they should have done that you're not laying any ethical evaluation you're just saying you know, well, what would have happened if you did this? Or what would you have ha- what, what do you think would have happened if you didn't do this? You know? And she said, yes, that, that kind of response is appropriate. And that is ethically grounded. Now, while bear attention as a calm, non reactive awareness plays a crucial part in samatha, which means calming or tranquility, um, bear attention can also lead to profoundly liberating insights. I'm not denying that. But generally, that can only work with people who already have a pretty well-developed practice and understanding, right? There's a story that's often repeated from the sutras when the Buddha tells a student, in the hearing, let there just be the hearing. In the seeing, let there just be the seeing. Now. What's overlooked, though, as I said, is that this particular student was already very highly advanced in his practice. Such an instruction given to a beginner would be meaningless and perhaps not at all helpful. Maybe even um, the opposite of being helpful. Right. It could really cause lots of wasted time because you take a beginner and you tell the, the beginner, just listen. right? Jackhammer goes off. They're going to get caught in their reaction, right? It's very hard to just listen without reacting, right? For instance, sometimes uh, you know I'll, I'll do this I, I do this in a class where I'll say dun da da dun dun, and most times if there's a large enough group, someone will go dun dun or clap their hands or something, and most people will report that they actually in their head hear that, right? And yet I didn't sound it. Can you just hear? Not so easy. The potential danger of practicing bare attention is that, by itself, while it can suppress unwholesome mental factors, it could also prevent wholesome factors from arising. Right? If you just bare attention, right? You're not cultivating anything. Um, right mindfulness with clear comprehension includes remembering the pain that a past action may have caused for yourself or for someone else and prospectively remembering that you don't want to repeat that action in the future so that you can prevent the future arising of such pain such recollection would be impossible with bare attention also the four immeasurables again friendliness compassion joy and equanimity which are all seen as wholesome mental factors that we're encouraged to cultivate can only be practiced with mindfulness not bare attention so in an integrated practice of buddhist meditation that would include some samatha calming and vipassana insight Samatha would be the primary platform for the development of sati or mindfulness. Then one would move into Vipassana, that insight oriented meditation, which includes the application and cultivation of sati and its discerning intelligence to each of the four domains of mindfulness, body, feelings, mental formations and Dharma or objects of mind now in future episodes i'll actually present on each of those four domains Uh, but for now briefly the recollection of the body begins with the breath just mindfully attending to the breath it goes on to include the whole body and we want to apply mindfulness to all the postures of the body the buddha lists Standing, sitting, lying down, walking, and then he goes, in whatever posture the body is deposed. And then and so that's why, uh, and that's the basis of mindfulness yoga. We can practice mindfulness in all of the various postures of hatha yoga. Then he goes on to talk about the activities of the body, and nothing gets left out. Right? He includes shitting, pissing, eating, dressing, all of it. Then he goes on to the parts of the body, the elements of the body, and finally the ultimate reality of the body as a decomposing corpse. So all of those exercises, so to speak, or objects of meditation make up that first domain of the body. Mindfulness of feelings investigates the felt sense of experience, what sometimes is referred to as the hedonic tone. Right? Seeing how all experience, whatever sensation you ever experience, while it varies in intensity, can only be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Right? And feelings will arise either physically or psychologically. And we're also led to really pay attention to the conditioned reactions, right, of clinging, aversion, and ignorance and what they feel like if they arise. That's the second domain, mindfulness of mental formations. That's where we attend to emotions, uh, discursive thinking or perceptions. And then the fourth domain, mindfulness of, of Dharma, investigates and categorizes experience according to aspects of the teachings of the Buddha, including the five hindrances of craving, aversion, dullness, agitation and doubt, which, by the way, if we can pay attention to them, shows that you do not have to be free from the hindrances in order to practice mindfulness meditation, satipatthana. We could actually bring mindfulness to our clinging, to our sloth and topor, right? Again, if you're unfamiliar with these, um, along with things like the Five Aggregates, the Seven Factors of Awakening, and the Four Realities of the Noble, uh, future episodes will look at these dharmic uh, categories, but they're all included in the fourth domain. So a very common example to summarize what I've been talking about so far, a sniper, an assassin, is practicing bare attention as he prepares for his kill. But from a Buddhist perspective, when the mind is engaged in an act of harming, it's not even capable of right mindfulness. As the sniper waits and prepares, there will be heightened attention, there'll be vigilance, concentration, and energy. But with an intention to cause harm, these factors are all under the sway of unwholesomeness. Free from the ethically grounded matrix of the Noble Eightfold Path, the contemporary understanding and practice of mindfulness becomes such bare attention. For mindfulness to become right mindfulness, it requires the ethical and the wisdom aspects, along with the meditation aspects of the Eightfold Path. So these eight limbs that make up the Noble Path are divided into three trainings ethics, meditation, and wisdom. That's actually what the yoga teachings of the Buddha boil down to, these three trainings, which again, we'll talk about in the future. I do have a previous episode where I have a a little introduction on ethics. We've talked a little bit about meditation. Um, We'll go into deeper um, investigation of all of these in future episodes. I'd also like to briefly touch upon the process behind the cultivation of mindfulness. It all begins with the arising of consciousness based upon the contact between a sense organ and a sense object. Now here's another area where there's deviations and differences in different forms of Buddhism and in their understandings about consciousness. many schools of Buddhism and Zen naturalism aligns with this understanding, is that there is no such thing as a pure consciousness that exists completely outside of causality. Consciousness arises interdependently. And there's not one, but six of these consciousnesses, one for each of the five senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, feeling, and tasting. So for instance, The sense organ of our eyes makes contact with the object, photons, and sight consciousness arises. And similar for the other four sensory organs. But the sixth one is mind consciousness, Now this consciousness is understood as the mere cognizing of an object by the organ. Then supporting mental factors help to create meaning from that roar cognizing, the sensory uh, data. For example, last night, my tongue made contact with a wonderful piece of dark chocolate and a feeling arose. I found it very pleasant because of many other factors, not least of which is my conditioned response to chocolate based upon previous experience. I am very cognizant that other people might find it unpleasant, right? It was a piece of dark chocolate. So it was bitter chocolate, wasn't milk chocolate. If my daughter had it, she would not have found it pleasant. That alone goes to show the empty nature of the experience. The pleasantness isn't inherent in the chocolate. According to the Abhidhamma, a later, more analytical presentation of the Dharma, contact Feeling, perception, intention, and attention are universal mental factors. They arise in every moment of consciousness. Last night, when I had that chocolate, contact, tongue, feeling, perception, intention, attention, we're all there. Meditation doesn't begin until we apply the initial application, vitaka, and sustained attention, vichara, supported by energy, virya, to keep us focused. So when we do chocolate meditation, everyone that I've ever shared that with has said, it's like I'm eating chocolate for the first time. So last night I ate chocolate. It really didn't become meditation, but it could have. Three ethically variable or neutral factors also are generally present while meditating, all right? So along with that initial application, sustained attention and energy, there's conviction or confidence, there's joy, and there's the impulse to act. But these are all said to be variable because, as you might imagine, these three factors can equally arise when doing something unwholesome. Now, with all of these mental factors present, one may be meditating, but it's still, according to the Abhidhamma, not mindfulness meditation. What is needed is mindful attention along with clear comprehension, back to that idea of sampajana, a clear comprehension of what I am attending to. According to the early discourses, a practitioner can be mindfully aware of unwholesome mental states such as envy or hatred but without these prerequisites it will be difficult if not impossible to do so without being swept away or having the mind occupied by these states of mind All right and again this is why telling a beginner to just sit and watch her anger is so often unfruitful now The Abhidhamma can get really complicated, asserting that with mindfulness, the arising of 18 other wholesome mental factors is said to arise, including among them equanimity, non-greed, non-hatred, self-respect, respect for others, tranquility, lightness, and malleability. And finally, to the surprise of many when they hear this, at least according to the commentarial tradition, Mindfulness alone does not inevitably lead to liberating wisdom or prajna. If mindfulness is not linked to the mental factor of insight, it will not in and of itself lead to any significant change in one's understanding and behavior. Now, some teachers who teach this assert that that can explain why so many long-term practitioners, in fact, seem not to have the breakthroughs that others speak about. And it may also be why even great teachers who do get some understandings can so often fail to live up to their own teachings. Real transformation comes from exposing and uprooting the deeply embedded tendency to project ownership onto experience to take any phenomena as being i me or mine a key contribution to the larger yoga tradition is the buddha's insight that meditative stabilization must be combined with the liberating discernment of the not self nature of phenomena for that kind of liberation as an old analogy has it mindfulness is like the hand that takes a sheaf of grain in its grip and wisdom the hand that cuts the scythe that cuts it down that holds the scythe that cuts it down All right grabbing that grain and cutting it down may you be well and thank you mm-hmm. Please remember you can comment or send emails if there's anything that you would like to suggest for future episodes I'm lining up some conversations with other teachers and practitioners so subscribe if you haven't and have a great day